All right, come on and take a seat, grab some coffee. You can do that as we're talking. But I'm going to get started here. Today's lesson is going to be on the first witnesses of the resurrection. Okay? So I know we're starting a little late. I'm going to do my best to be able to manage our time and hopefully have some good conversation together. But as always, it's a good idea to start with prayer. So let's pray this together. This is part of the Great Litany, and this is where we talk about our first witnesses. For Mary Magdalene, Salome, and Mary, first witnesses of the resurrection, and for all who bear witness to Christ, thanks be to God. All right. You can get cozy, get comfy, grab some coffee, and here we go. So um, we're talking about the first witnesses of the resurrection. Um, I love art. Art speaks to me. Art helps me get ready to worship. And so I've included just some of my current favorite images. Uh, this is actually from a children's book on the resurrection. This is the Easter story by Brian Wildsmith. But I thought it was so beautiful that I had to include it. And if you were actually looking at the book, you would see gold leaf on it too. So it's really quite stunning. But we're talking about the resurrection today. And um, we're talking about the first witnesses. This is something that is near and dear to my heart because women play a key role in this story. Yay! Um, I feel like we always, you can go through huge portions of scripture where not even a woman's name is mentioned, and yet this is the whole story. It's awesome. So we get to talk about the first witnesses today. So just to keep in mind, um, this is after Jesus' death and resurrection. This is Sunday. This is Easter morning, okay? So all the things that you imagine have happened have happened. He was crucified. He was taken down off the cross. He was put in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb with, with haste, much haste. So the normal burial proceedings couldn't happen. They were concerned about getting him in the ground before the Sabbath end. Okay? So they put him in the tomb three days. And on the morning of the third day, these holy women come to the tomb bearing spices and ointments to do what they would want to do for their beloved one's body and prepare it, okay? That's the scene. Now, this story is told in all four Gospels. You can find it in all of them because it is crucial to the story of Jesus. But they're all different. They are all very, very different. In fact, if you try to read them all back to back, you will just be really taken <laughs> by the fact that there are differences in each of them. I can't tell you which one is my favorite account. I can't tell you which one to read or which one not to read. I think you should read them all. Um, but there are some important details in each account. And so very, very quickly, um, I just want to kind of highlight a couple of things that are mentioned. All right? Um, so in Matthew's Gospel, he mentions Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, probably the mother of James and Joseph. Okay? There are some differences going on here. The biggest punchline in Matthew's telling of this, though, is that the two Marys get to see Jesus, the risen Lord, and, in a difference from other tellings, they get to lay down at his feet, they get to grab a hold of him, physically touch him, and they get to worship the risen Lord. Wow. That, that's, a, that's a big moment, and I have yet, I haven't found any artistic representation, by the way, of that image. 
there's a lot of the Mary Magdalene, don't touch me, no let me tanger, that kind of stuff. You have that of Mary Magdalene and Christ saying no. I have not found the two Marys physically touching him in worship, though. So if you know of an image like that, please hit me up, because I am interested. Um, Mark's telling mentions specifically Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome. Okay, so the first account only mentions two. Second account, we hear three. Um, it stops with Mary and Mary and Salome being afraid and running away. And that's where we get the story stopping. Um, and that's because there's different accounts and different kind of, our best sources don't go back as far to include the ending of Mark. So I didn't include it in this study either. Now Luke's gospel tells the story and it includes the names Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and very kind of cryptically, the other women. So clearly there's a crowd going on. Um, this account has where you have uh, the women physically get to go. They run and they tell the good news, the Lord is risen. They go to the men. They tell them. They tell the remaining 11. And it says specifically, they were heard, but they were not believed. Okay? So they reported. They did with due diligence, and they were not believed. Peter goes himself and runs to the empty tomb, but he leaves marveling. Now, Luke's account is fascinating in a lot of different ways, but I will say it's interesting if you're reading this back and forth. This is the first time you hear in scripture um, in an account saying they went to see the body of Lord Jesus. All of a sudden, he gets a title. We're not pretending. We're not saying, who is this? What is this man? What is going on? This is the Lord. And so we get that title in here. So that's a really important moment to keep. And I know I'm going fast, but I want to make sure we get a chance to talk. Um, and in John 20, we only get Mary Magdalene mentioned by name, but I want to say that if you read John's account, Mary in her discourse is saying, using plural language, we came, we could not find him. So even though it's only Mary Magdalene mentioned by name, clearly she is talking about a group that has gone with her. So there is this group of holy women who have gone to the tomb. Um, John's account is also beautiful because we get this image of we get this image of Mary seeing Jesus and not recognizing him. She sees the risen Lord and she mistakes him for the gardener, which is just so poetic and so full of biblical imagery. God in his garden. This talks and can point all the way back to Eden, right, where God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This is He's back in his garden, but we don't recognize him yet. But how does Mary recognize that this is the Lord? She recognizes him when she hears her name, Mary. And that's such a beautiful moment because we see again that the sheep recognize the shepherd's voice. And all of a sudden her eyes are opened and she sees that it is Jesus Christ revealed. So it's a really beautiful account. Um, she because she's able to go, she proclaims this message. We hear and we see this. I know this is really, really fast, but that was all four Gospels accounts smashed really, really close together. But are we all kind of tracking with what's going on? We know where the story is? Okay, please raise your hands, pause if there are questions in that. I want this to be a discussion. So the next thing we have to look at then, we kind of talked about this. What does witness mean? What does witness mean? So these women, these holy women, are called 
the first witnesses. And so it ought to bear, <laughs> we ought to think a bit about what does it mean to be a witness? What does that mean in biblical terms? So we're going to take a look at that. Witness here is meant in a legal context. Okay? Um, this can mean a religious proclamation, a confession, or even up until martyrdom. That's what witness means to the fullest extent. In fact, the root word for martyr is the same root word for witness. Okay, that's how, that's how much we're linked together. So it has to do with telling truth on the most profound level. All right? It's always um, in regards to a court type of situation, a court of law. So this is always courtroom scenes. Okay? That makes sense so far? Why the Panto Crater icon? Any ideas why I would pick that icon? Yeah. Yes, David, you were totally on it. I picked this image, not because this is the warm and fuzzy Jesus that we all kind of know and love, but because who is the judge in these courtroom settings? Who's the judge? Feel free to shout it out. Jesus is the judge. Thank you, Rich. Thank you. Yes, Jesus is our judge. So this is not a court. This is not a trial of our peers when we're talking about what does it mean to be a witness for Christ. It's not a trial among peers like we have in this world. It is a trial. It is a courtroom with Jesus as our advocate and our judge. That's why we pick this icon. That's what this is about. So where do we see the concept of witness in scripture? Now, I'm pulling this from um, the Dictionary of Biblical Theology, um, and this section is written by R.G. Machini, and he's wonderfully succinct and very, very thoughtful in how he pulls this all out. So if you want a much more full understanding with all the sources, that's where you can go and hunt this down. But I'm just going to give you his kind of sketchwork of what this is. All right? We see witness used when we talk about the Ten Commandments. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So we think that means don't just tell a lie, right? But it's more than don't just tell a lie, right? It's a witness where you are testifying against someone. Don't do that. We hear that again, okay? If you were to look through and read through Deuteronomy 19, which if we had more time we might hear, this is talking about what is required biblically to prove your case, okay? So it's not enough to have one witness. How many must you have? Does anyone remember this portion? Bare minimum two, three is great, but you cannot just stand on your own words. There needs to be some sort of corroboration, okay? Um, and then you're able to take this corroborated story and you take this before the priests, your Levitical judge. And this is not a very, um, it's not always very grace-filled with you are forgiven, go. No, it, this portion of scripture ends with this. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and hand for hand. That is, if you are caught testifying incorrectly, bearing false witness against someone, and you're trying to get them to pay, whatever you wanted done to them, that's what's happening now to you. Make sense? Okay, so 
Why do I bring this up? I bring this up because it's important to know that the idea of being a witness was taken very seriously in Jewish culture. They took it seriously. Okay? This was no joke to them. All right. um, we get examples, in fact, we get examples over and over again where Israel is, in fact, a witness for God himself. So the idea goes that if Israel was obeying the law, and was doing what they needed to do, they were a witness that God, Yahweh, was the true Lord, and everyone else was not. Does that make sense? So this is a really important thing. Other examples of biblical witnesses, um, heaven and earth bear witness about who God is. The altar and the ark of the covenant bear witness as to who God is and his glory. Songs, scripture are also witnesses in scripture. We hear them all listed. And then in particular, we have some of these people. John the Baptist bears witness about the one coming, right? Jesus himself bears witness as to who the Father is. The Holy Spirit bears witness as to who Jesus is and who God the Father is. The apostles bear witness as to who Jesus was. The church bears witness as to who Jesus was. Are you seeing a theme repeated over and over and over again? We are all witnesses as to who God is. Right? So it's a big deal. So the defining characteristic of being a witness is being able and willing to tell the truth, to let that be reflected in all areas of your life, even up until martyrdom. Yeah, I know, not what you were expecting for our first witnesses lesson. <laughs> we went straight to martyrdom. So, here we are. Here we are. We also, um, before I jump into talking about Mary Magdalene, if you read the Great Commission, which is in Acts 1, and you hear verse 8, go and be my witnesses, right? Go out into all the world. That's the commission that he gives to the apostles. That's the commission that we take up. So if you're wondering where am I getting that from, that we're God's witnesses, read Acts 1.8. That's our job. That's our calling. Caller or not caller. Doesn't matter, right? So before I talk a little bit about these women in particular, I know I'm going lightning fast. Any questions about the whole concept of witness or any thoughts about that? Anything from the legal concept and on? Yeah. Something I thought was interesting was it's been a long time since I've read Deuteronomy, and so I didn't remember the, um, the eye for an eye idea as being paired with the. Um, the false witness yeah. aspect of that I at least remember it as, as only being like just if you broke someone's foot you're punishing this just a break foot. Right. I don't I don't remember if it, if it also applies to that or not. But that, that's really interesting that that's um, uh, a deterrence against um, against falsely trying to um, deceive in order to, to harm someone else. I just I just found that really yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, um, it's a passage that we've all heard, and we've heard, and the world knows that passage. Eye for an eye. I don't want to be a part of that kind of God. 
But it's interesting to see where that kind of comes in and that that's connected with this idea of somehow bearing false witness or somehow intentionally choosing to harm or to, you know, falsely represent who you are. So that's an interesting concept. Yeah, Mark. Yeah, one thing about thinking about witness in a legal uh, context yeah. is that it makes it an obligation or responsibility that you have, you know, we yes. always think of like proclaiming God just out of like the overflowing of emotion. But whether or not you actually feel it like this is something that is assigned to you and you're relying on what you tell them. Right. Right, and it's not just about what you tell them, but it's also about how you live. Because notice that for Israel, it wasn't just about do they proclaim God as God to the world, but it was also do you follow his laws? Do you follow his statutes? It's how do you live? So again, whether it's through us vocally evangelizing to the world or how we live our lives, both are counted as part of our witness, and that's our testimony to the world. Does that make sense? So if one of those is not matching up, you're in trouble. It's not just, are you out on the street corner evangelizing? But if you're hating on your neighbor, if you don't care about the poor, if you don't care about people who are being oppressed, then you are bearing false witness. Does that make sense? It touches and it cuts way deeper than that. So it's, it's pretty big. Yeah, John. And unlike you know, assault or murder, where the big question is, was it premeditated or not? Right. Yeah, yeah, you got to be ready for it. Sorry, what was that, Phil? What I just said was that um, with the importance of having your words and your actions lining up. Yeah, okay. So it's not just enough to evangelize and tell people, Jesus is Lord, and let me tell you all the reasons why. I mean, yes, please go and do that. That's part of what you ought to do. But the other part of that equation is, you can evangelize all you want by using the right words, but if you are being an awful neighbor, who cares? Who wants a Jesus like that? I don't. I don't want to deal with a hypocritical God, right? Um, and so that's what, it ups the stakes a little bit, because it doesn't just matter about what you say in those crunch time moments where, well, I'm evangelizing right now. Maybe I'm doing missions work. Maybe I'm out talking to people. Maybe I'm saying, hey, no, that's not the real God. Let me tell you about God. But who you are and how you live and how you act matters. That, too, is part of your testimony to the whole world. That's why it's both. It's not just words. It's actions. It's how you live. Yeah. Yeah, Abby. Right. So like we're actually obligated and we're shirking our duties if we're not reporting on and sort of promulgating the message of goodness that we see. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's important to reflect that. And you know, again, it's not just about saying the right words, but people how do they know God's love? By being shown God's love, right? The words come after, but usually people encounter God's love not first through scripture, but through someone first loving them, right? And so if you're not doing that, then the words might never get a chance to really cut as deep. No, that's, I don't want to cut God out of the equation, and he can do however he wants to do. And maybe it's great. Maybe they will pick up a Bible one day, and they'll be you know, convicted and cut to the core. 
But usually what happens is you interact with somebody and the first response is, why are you doing this? Because God thinks you're important and he thinks you deserve love. Yeah, Jennifer. There's a tradition, I think it's called the 70 facets or something. Yes, yes. Exactly, exactly. So that's part of the reason why it's important. And hold on, I see you rich and then Matt. Yeah. Okay, I'd like to hear it. It requires a boldness and it requires you knowing, um, I talk a lot about what your default setting is. Some of us have that gift where we are comfortable, I'll tell it to the world, I can just do this and go for it. Some of us need to work a little bit on that. I fall into the second camp where I do a little bit better, I have to kind of be urged into talking about it more. That's not a bad thing, but know what your default is because you require to do both in life. Does that make sense? Yeah, Matt. Joy, something that didn't strike me until you spoke this morning, the most, one of the most masculine experiences you can ever have in Christianity is to be on Mount Athos, only men allowed, women are simply not permitted on the peninsula in Greece, and you go and you hear a big burly black robed monk say, Christos Anesti, <laughs> Christ is risen, and your response, Alethos Anesti, he is risen indeed, very masculine moment, and yet he's speaking what a woman said, Amen. because all the men were gone. Amen. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Preach that word. So, again, that ties us in nextly, and I'm moving on. And this is what is important, okay? So, I promise you, this is going to be about women. I promised you today, and it will. It will. We're getting there. So, who are the women? Who are these women that we're talking about who get to be the first witnesses? We have Mary Magdalene, right? Okay. Formerly possessed by seven demons, healed of those. We know that. We know that, okay? She was a supporter and follower of Jesus. Not just one of these people who has one encounter and is done. She is a regular, devoted follower of Christ, okay? She is one of the few who remain at the cross during his crucifixion. One of the few. She also is one of the first witnesses to the resurrection itself. She, by the way, is our example of holy women. Her name is listed first in our great litany because she is mentioned by name in all four accounts of this gospel story as our first witness, okay? And because of what she does and this important role that she gets to play, the church has called her the apostle to the apostles. If it bears in mind that to be an apostle, you believe in the risen Christ, and you're telling that news, then the first apostles weren't the 12 or the 11 faithful, but it was Mary Magdalene and these women here. That is crucial, right? So we don't know much more about 
her. Um, she's portrayed in a lot of different art and a lot of different backgrounds as being um, deeply sinful or perhaps having a very troubled past and not just demon possessed, but she's frequently portrayed as a prostitute. I don't know why. There's nothing that says that in scripture if you look for it. Um, and I did, I looked. I couldn't find it. So if someone has that background or wants to share with me why that gets brought in, please talk to me afterwards because I truly was confused about where that came into play. But that's not mentioned in scripture. So she's one of the faithful women, all right? Um, I also pull out this kind of idea of how she was perceived or how she was described because this, was, this is what's important. If your entire testimony rests on a witness, how interesting is it that this witness, formerly demon-possessed, a woman, probably not a lot of prestige in this world, that sounds actually kind of like a witness that would be really easy to dismiss to me if my case rested on this. So that's just an interesting thing to keep in mind. Some of the other holy women here, all right? Um, these are the holy women or the other women. These are the other Mary this is Salome. Um, Salome is probably the mother of St. James and St. John, the sons of Zebedee. Um, she was also present at the crucifixion. If you go back in the Gospels and read, she was there too. Um, it's possible that she was a sister or a half-sister of the BVM, the Blessed Virgin Mary. All right, yeah. In, in my notes, I have them as Mary Mags and the BVM, so that's just how I abbreviate. And, and that's not meant to be dismissive, it's just, it's a long title to write out, all right? Um, so she was present and a woman that was deeply invested and devoted in the cause, okay? Then there was Mary, the other Mary. Who is this Mary? Well, she was probably the wife of Cleophas, the mother of James. She also was at the crucifixion. Depending on who you think this other Mary was, she might have been one of the people, the two people spoken to on the road to Emmaus. Depends on what you think. Joanna, who is another name mentioned in Luke's gospel in particular, she was a wife of a very um, affluent steward, Herod's steward, Chusa. She was that person's wife, and she brought all of her prestige, all of her financial backing, and she became a prominent follower of Christ and in the early church. Okay? Now, this is what's really important here. I don't know who all the crowd of these women were. I don't know. The other women is one of the most tantalizing and frustrating phrasing for me as we read this. Who were these people? They were faithful. They showed up. That's what interests me, but I don't get to know that yet. In glory, I will. I want to hear the whole story. But we don't get to know that about them. But what we do know, these women, the ones at least that were named, would have been well known enough by the early church that their names mattered, or why include them. Okay? So some of these women would have been known. Each of them have their own unique and important story. Each of them had their own relationship with Jesus. Each of them were there because they were devoted, they were faithful, and they knew that this was the Lord. I don't know anything else about them, but that's enough to testify. That's enough to be a witness here, right? So we don't get to know their names. But this is what's important, all right? Without this... So without this, the women running to the tomb, you don't get this. 
All right, so I'm going to step aside so you can see that. Without those faithful women going, without those faithful women going to the tomb and reporting back, you don't get Peter and the beloved running back to the tomb. You don't get the apostles waiting with anticipation as to when they get to see the risen Lord. Are you hearing me? This is what's important. And why is that so, so important? So these are the parallels that I thought through as I was thinking about this lesson and praying about this. When you have the Magnificat and you hear the Virgin Mary's song, her saying yes and talking about God exalting the humble and bringing down the mighty, and you get these beautiful pictures here. This, that picture, that Magnificat, Consider Mary Magdalene's yes and the praise of these holy women as part two. They proclaim it to the apostles. We don't get it written down, but they get to say, I have seen the Lord. That's part two of the Magnificat in my mind. It's other women who've said yes, who bear witness to the fact that Jesus is coming, has indeed come. That's a powerful statement right there. And that is something that does not get to be claimed by men. I'm not hating on you today, men, but I'm saying that the church has often told things from your side of the story. That's okay. There's no hate for my brothers. Much love. But this is a story that centers around women, and so today we get to put ourselves in that position. I was also struck by this image that at the transfiguration, three men, Peter, James, and John, go up with Jesus, and they get to see Jesus totally transformed, a moment of glory where they see the two, where they see, um, blanking on the names here, people. Help me with the transfiguration. Thank you. Yes, Moses and Elijah, each representing the prophets and the law on either side of Jesus. They get to see him in his glory for one moment in time, right? And then they come back down to earth and everything is different. How interesting is it that that second time that we get to see Jesus revealed in all its glory, it's not the men, is it? Who is it that gets to see Jesus revealed in all his glory? It's the women. It's these first witnesses. They're the ones who get that first glimpse, that first glimpse of transfigured beauty. Right? Do you see the symmetry and balance here? Do you see that? John the Baptist prepares the way for the people to see the kingdom of God. Mary Magdalene and these first witnesses prepare the apostles to share the good news to the church. Right? So why am I pulling these things out? It's not to say that this is actually a much bigger deal than we make it out to be. It's saying that there is a beautiful symmetry and understanding and balance within how God sees his people, men and women. Do you see this? It's tremendously powerful. To me, that's, wow, this matters. It matters. Okay? So um, we have just a few minutes um, but I want to be able to open this up to discussion briefly, and I think that we can do this together. The first witnesses, but certainly not the last. I have this intentionally there. Um, I don't think it would be fair for us today to talk about how God sees women and how God uses women to be faithful witnesses, even to their brothers and sisters when the world would not have deemed them to be a reputable source at that point in time. 
we would not be doing the text justice if we didn't talk a little bit about how that applies today and feel a little bit of that uncomfortable sting today. And I think we can do that. We don't have a lot of time, but I think we can. We need to do some reflection and we need to think about who is it in our society, in our culture, in our world, in our neighborhood, however you want to describe it, who don't you believe and why? Whose voices are not heard? I can think of examples and I can talk at you all day, but I'd love to hear some of the things of how this applies to you. Because there's a lot of ugly in this world. Yeah, John. So you're thinking of your example of the, the maybe prostitute who also maybe isn't. Right. Um, folks who, whose uh, reputation or even history with the truth yep. is not unblemished right. are hard to believe. And for that reason, they're frequently victims of people who know how to make their victims terrible. Yeah. Yeah. But that doesn't get to work so well for us, right? And you know why we have to give them that second shot. Peter himself lied three times, and we get an account of that. It's called denying Christ, but he says, I don't know him. That's not just denying, that's a straight lie. So tell me again why we shouldn't believe someone who has lied before. Interesting. Who else? Yeah, Kathy. Yeah, yeah. Whoever we disagree with, we automatically say, nah, I can't believe what you're saying. That doesn't get to hold much water in this account, though, does it? Yeah? yeah? Judy? Yeah, very close to home. I have two very disabled sons. Mm -hmm. They're not well-educated. Uh, they are not Yeah. And, and you see that, I mean, it's easier. We like to say that with kids, you know, we get annoyed, but kids, oh, they hold so much potential. We can more easily wrap our minds around paying attention to children. But what do we do with adults who perhaps are not as educated as us, who perhaps have some developmental disabilities or some developmental things? Like, I think about that a lot. How do we, do we respect those people? Do we hear their witness? Do we dismiss them? Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. Um, Abby and then, I don't know your name, I'm sorry. What's your name? Hannah. Hannah. Okay, Abby then Hannah. Yeah. Um, I think it's also really easy, as we always often swallow ourselves and really comfortable lies that look like truth. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's really easy to sort of give someone, you know, a one minute stopwatch and <laughs> I listened, right? And I think that, <laughs> that is step one, you know, right. Yep. Um, but establishing that as almost like a standing appointment, you know, I think then allows us to actually interact with what they're contributing. It's a discipline, a discipline to listen. Yeah, Hannah, what were you going to say? Well, I was just thinking you were, you were asking us something like who doesn't, uh, whose witness kind of is not heard. And I think we need to bring a community to move that. Yeah. Um, 
Well, it's an important thing to note. I mean, I, I will hit you up next, Micah. Um, this is an important thing to note. So the Me Too movement, the church movement, um, the church too, abuse happens everywhere, and I hate that. But we would be foolish to think that it also doesn't happen within our own church somehow, right? We would be foolish to think that somehow sin has not come in and twisted a little bit about how we perceive our brothers and sisters. We would be foolish to think that we actually are as loving as we need to be, as gracious as we need to be. We'd be foolish to imagine that somehow we are not all kind of jockeying for power. Don't think that the church is exempt from those things. Sin is in this building. You know why? Because we are full of sin and we enter this building. That's why. And I say that we very intentionally. We, right? So I think it is always something that we need to keep in mind. Who is in the position of power? Are they using it well? Are they too comfortable with it? Who does not have a voice? Who is immediately discounted? Why? Why are they discounted? Why has it been so long that one group may have this established power while another group barely gets heard or referenced? Maybe even not even acknowledged? That's a problem, and that's uncomfortable. But that's not just our culture, if we're being honest, and that's not just something they deal with in some Baptist church or non-denominational church or maybe the Catholic church. That's something we deal with here. Okay, We're not better than our brothers and sisters. The only difference is that we haven't fallen into that temptation of acting out to the fullest extent yet. Does that make sense? So don't get uppity that we're doing all right here. We have work to do too. Yeah, Micah. I think what keeps us silent is fear. Yeah. And uh, as Abby was saying, we want to stay comfortable and bearing witness is uncomfortable. And the, the accountant Matthew notes that the women were afraid. Yeah. They were terrified, but they still were witness. I think that's really powerful. Yeah. They were afraid and they still followed through. That's a lesson right there, men or women. You know, that's a lesson we all need, right? We need to be bold. We need to be faithful. Doesn't matter. Yeah, John. But just to close that loop, the reason they were afraid is they, it was almost certain they would not be believed. Right. And if you report something like that and you're not believed, then you're crazy in addition to everything else you've well, and, and quite honestly, quite honestly, it sounds bad, but I'm going to speak. I am speaking from a woman's perspective today. It should haunt you, the a number of people who report crimes and are not believed. If you start doing some digging on the Internet, if there are voices of minorities or women or people who have developmental issues or are special needs, those voices are not believed as people who are good, upstanding members of their community, or in better socioeconomic brackets, live a more comfortable life. And that's just how it is. And that should be enough that frightens you and screams out saying, this cannot be how we do things in the church. It's not an accident that these women are the first witnesses. It's because God values that which the world does not understand. God says, you are enough, you are loved, you are my beloved, in fact. And you are going to be my witnesses. Yeah. So Joel and then Jennifer. I think we sometimes mythologize and valorize a person's witness into obscurity. Mm -hmm. So the Blessed Virgin Mary would be a perfect example. 
Native American people would be another yes. example in our society. And for me, I would say, above all, we most mythologize nature and its ways. Absolutely. Throughout the entire liturgy and service this morning, we heralded it. It was there time and time again, and yet it was just a dream almost. We, we take that witness with no seriousness whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. There's a lot here, and, and if we start looking for what is witnessing and bearing the image of God and what is pointing back to God, I think you will be surprised as to what you find. And that's not you see God in everything. I'm saying that everything can reflect the glory of God, however. Does that, do you understand that distinction? This isn't like pantheistic. This is saying everything that has been created reflects and glorifies the Lord, whether they want to or not. And it is our privilege to be able to partner in that glory work. Jennifer, if you want to, um, do you have a thought here that you want to share? Well, I mean, this is the sort of thing I want you to keep in mind. When God asks people to be a witness, it's not because they're particularly gifted to do that. He just requires obedience. And the great example of this is Moses, a man with a speech impediment who is required to speak on the Lord's behalf, right? It wasn't because Moses was particularly set to do this or particularly gifted by his own account. It was because God said, you need to do this. So what is required of us is our obedience. And so we shouldn't dismiss a witness, whatever that witness is, whatever that life is stating, because it is not eloquent, because it may be rambly, or because this person may have done things in the past that would kind of dismiss that. You have to think about this in the terms of understanding that God has deemed every single person to be worth loving, and worth saving and worth dying for. And I don't like that, quite honestly, because it makes my job harder. There are people that I kind of have decided I don't want to do that for. You might not deserve that of me, but there's no loophole here. There's not. It doesn't matter to God if you are particularly you know, eloquent, or if you're particularly on fire for him, or if you are super gifted at what you do, or rich, or poor, or beautiful, or not. He doesn't care. He made you, and you are his. He determines your worth. And that's the standard we are following with here. So for us, this is just a call to understand, and, and I'm very aware that I'm a woman speaking this to you, and I'm in a place where a lot of my sisters in Christ could not do this. There are people I know who I believe have had callings who do not have a background that allows them to speak. And that's a humbling, yeah, that's a humbling thing for me because I'm not better than them. 
and in some ways they would have delivered this lesson far better. But here I am. So I encourage you to be um, eyes open about how you are witnessing to the world who God is. Look to see and to receive that witness from others. And above all, learn how to love and value people with the way that Jesus does, which is that we are all of infinite worth, of infinite value, and worth tremendous love. Amen. Amen.